All right. Well, we are in the Gospel of Mark. I brought some pens. I don't know if you guys need pens, and I have some extra notebook paper if you guys need some. You need some notebook paper? Yeah. All right. Um, yes, we, I only put a, a limited amount in those binders to begin with, and it is a good thing to take notes. So, yeah, I'll give you a handful. Anybody else need some? Yeah. What about pens? Can I throw a pen at anybody? Joseph, can I throw a pen at you? <laughs> I'm just playing. Oh. All right. There you go. All right. So, what did we learn last week in Mark? Who is here could, that could help us recap a little bit of what we did last week? We were at the end of chapter 2, going into chapter 3, and in my opinion, that's not the greatest break for a chapter, because those two sections are very similar. What did we talk about last week in those sections? Chapter 2, verse 23 to 3, verse 6. Anybody? I know Jerry knows, but I would love to see somebody else. (laughs) <laughs> what did we learn last week? And you weren't here last week, were you? Oh, you were. Yeah, you were. I was just back there, and you were typically back there. Yeah, Daniela was sick last week. That's right. <laughs> no, you were here, but she wasn't, I think. Oh, you were taking care of her. That's right. All right. Well, last week we were talking about the Sabbath, Remember? And how Christ was uh, working, supposedly, on the Sabbath. Um, Let's see, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. We should go back even before that. What are some other things that we've seen Jesus doing up until this point in the book of Mark? What are some things that Jesus has been doing just in his ministry that Mark has documented up until this point in chapter 3? Yeah, been healing sicknesses and diseases, right? Yeah, teaching and preaching. That's his primary reason for for ministering, right? He said that he was sent to to preach, and oftentimes he was called back to heal people, and he said, no, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to preach instead. That was his, his purpose, his primary mission, although he did heal. And what else was he doing? Yes, good. I think those three things sum up his ministry quite well. That he was preaching and teaching, he was healing of sickness and disease, and he was casting out demons. Good. And then last week, we looked at Jesus, quote-unquote, working and healing on the Sabbath. Uh, What did he teach through these events of working on the Sabbath? Steve. That the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Amen. Perfect. You know, that he is, in fact, Lord of the Sabbath, right? And Sabbath, it's not something that we have to, to abide by in a legalistic type of way, but it is something that is there to serve us. And Jesus, being the Lord of the Sabbath, has complete and utter authority to do what he wants on the Sabbath and to establish his own precedents and rules and not to have to abide by the Pharisees and their man-made rules, right? Any other thoughts on that 
All right, and remember that when he was confronted with healing on the Sabbath, he didn't just roll over and apologize. It's not as if he just said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't realize. I didn't know it was the Sabbath. My bad. I'm not going to do that again, right? That wasn't his response at all. He said, no, the, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Uh, again, he has complete and utter authority. He wasn't apologizing. He wasn't going to um, bend to the, the pleas of these legalists who were trying to get him to uh, obey the Sabbath. And then, uh, lastly, on our review section, <clears throat> what is the nature of Jesus' kingship? It's been a, a few weeks since we've talked about Jesus' kingship and his kingdom. What is the nature of the kingship of Jesus? But it's not earth-based. Yes. And his kingdom is not of this world, right? Good. What else? What makes Jesus king? Who makes Jesus king? Jesus. Yeah, he's just innately king of kings and lord of lords, right? He didn't have to win some kind of popularity contest. He didn't have to win a vote. Uh, he is, by nature, the absolute king. He is the creator. He is the sovereign of all the universe, right? Without having been given that, that title by anybody else. Uh, he is the, the rightful heir of King David. Remember in 1 Samuel 7, King David was told that he would be king and that he would have a, a king to sit on his throne forever. And Jesus is the heir of that. He is the son of David, right? And rightly fulfills that role as king. We, I don't know if we focus on that this last Christmas in this building, but typically we focus on that quite often at Christmas, that uh, Jesus is a descendant of David, right? And going all the way back to, to Abraham and all the way back to Adam and all the way back to God. Uh, Fourteen generations, right, between, oh, who is that? Abraham and David and then David and, no, it was Abraham and Babylon. I don't know. I'm uh, trying to think about Matthew 1, but there are 14 generations there in between each one. And then... Um, his, his incarnation, his being king, uh, he manifested his kingdom in some sense. As Jerry said, his kingdom is not of this world, uh, but uh, he is still king. The kingdom is at hand. He is here. The king is here. And therefore, the kingdom is in, at, in some sense at hand. And we've talked before about how we being followers of Christ... Um, who recognize Jesus as king, we are subject to him. We are his subjects, we are his servants, his slaves, and he is our king, uh, and we recognize him as such. And he will one day be recognized universally as king. He will be here reigning on this earth, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so there is a, a future aspect to his kingdom, and yet uh, a very present aspect, especially for those of us who call him king. Um, I went back and looked. Matthew 1.17 says that uh, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. And from David to Babylon are 14. And Babylon to the Messiah. Not that that matters, but that was stuck in my head. All right. Any other thoughts on uh, the nature of Jesus' kingship? All right. The fact that he is here definitely plays into his statement. 
Strained into man's habits and thoughts up to that process. God reveals progressively, and so we should keep mm-hmm. expecting more new and different things instead of trying to keep it bottled up. Everything's the same. All right, good. You guys remember that term, progressive revelation, that God slowly reveals uh, more of Himself as time goes on, and uh, we're actually going to be talking about that here on Wednesday night in the next couple of weeks. So if you have more thoughts or questions on that, you should come on Wednesday nights. Um, and yes, Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, right? And we can't add the law to Christ. If salvation could come through the law, then Christ died for nothing. But in fact, it couldn't. That's why we needed Christ. He is a, a better sacrifice, right? All of Hebrews, he's better. He's superior, for sure. Good. Any other Thoughts on Jesus' kingship? All right. Well, let's look at Mark chapter 3. Let's turn to Mark chapter 3, and I'll go ahead and read uh, the first uh, five or six verses of our passage. Verses 7 to, let's go through 12. It says that Jesus withdrew to the sea. So again, this is after his encounter on the Sabbath with these Pharisees who came at at him, and um, they were conspiring against him and seeking to destroy him in verse 6. And then 7 says that Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those had, who had had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. We'll stop there for a moment. But we do see here that uh, Jesus withdrew once again to the sea with his disciples. This is starting to become a, a pattern of sorts for Christ. Uh, we see that he did this uh, earlier in Mark, um, let's see, I think it's 125, I think I messed up my notes also, um, back in 116, says that as he was going along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brothers of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. So this is when he went, he was uh, recruiting those fur first four disciples in verses 16 through 20 of chapter 1. And then later on, he does the same thing in uh, chapter 2, verse 13. It says that he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And that's when he went out and he was uh, gathering Levi, or Matthew, as his disciple. So in both those two passages that, <clears throat> that we just read about his encounters on the sea, he was out there gathering disciples to himself. And so um, at, at this point, those are the only disciples that we see following after Christ. It was 
James and John, Peter and Andrew, who were actually before James and John. So Peter, Andrew, James and John, and then Matthew were the disciples that were with him at this point. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see that Jesus is followed by people from all over Israel. You guys see all those different regions that are mentioned there? Um, Starting in verse 7, going into verse 8. Actually, we'll throw that map up there. Um, So it talks about uh, a great multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea. Remember, Galilee's up at the, the north end. Uh, up here by the Sea of Galilee. That's the kind of region of Galilee. <clears throat> and then down here in the south by the Dead Sea is Judea, uh, which is misspelled, I just realized. Uh, there's no A right there. Uh, so Judea. And then Jerusalem, which is right here within the midst of Judea. And then Idumea. That's down here, kind of where the, the top of this compass is. That's where uh, Idumea is, and then beyond the Jordan. So if you guys remember in uh, Joshua talking about the, the Transjordan tribes, so right here is the Jordan River connecting the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, and over here is beyond the Jordan, the Transjordan. What were the, the tribes that we read about in Joshua that settled over in Transjordan? Do you remember? Jerry's working on it. Yes. There were two and a half. No. Half tribe of Manasseh. Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. So they settled over here in the, the Transjordan area. And so people from this area are now coming out to, to see Christ in our text in Mark 3. And then also. Uh, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. And that's all the way up here in the Syrophoenician area. And you get all the way up here and you're dealing with uh, a lot more Gentiles, especially up here. But then also uh, later on, moreover, in this Transjordan area, there are some, those are greater Gentile areas as well. So uh, we have people from all these different areas coming to, to see Jesus, coming to hear Jesus. Um, and let's turn over to uh, Matthew 12 real quick. What's the distance from Um, I don't know. That's a question I'm not ready to answer. Sorry. It's probably lower on that map. I just, I don't have it. Sorry, bro. Yes. Oh, okay. Crazy. I've never seen it spelled like that. All right, so I'm in Habakkuk somehow. We shouldn't be in Habakkuk. Yeah, 160-ish or something. Backwards. Yep. We have a Jordan River here in Utah too, but not quite the same. All right, so Matthew 12, and will somebody read verses 15 through 21 real quick? Who's got that? Matthew 12, 15 through 21. 
All right, Joseph. <laughs> yes, Matthew twelve fifteen through 21. So this is a, a parallel passage to where we were in Mark. So this is immediately after Jesus had healed the man's withered hand in the, the Sabbath, on, on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Was it even in the synagogue? Yeah. It was in the synagogue. Okay, thank you. Um, so it says in verse 15 that Jesus was aware of this. He withdrew from there. Um, many people followed him. And that's what we saw back in Mark, right? These people from all these different areas, these different regions were follow, following after him. And he warned them not to tell who he was. And then um, in verse 18, he's quoting from Isaiah 42, and he is proclaiming justice to the Gentiles. We see that same thing in verse 21, that in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And so that's why it's important to look at these different regions that Mark is mentioning, because he's talking about these regions that are more Gentile in population, up in Syrophoenicia with Tyre and Sidon, and the Transjordan area. Those are areas that are more, popula more populated with Gentiles. And Jesus is now moving into and having an effect in those regions. He isn't actually in those regions right now, but people from those regions have heard about Jesus. He has uh, gone viral, so to speak, in uh, pre-Twitter, pre-YouTube, era, just by word of mouth. These people are hearing about Jesus, and they're coming to Jesus to um, see what he has to say to, um, well, that's what we need to really ask ourselves. Why are these people coming to Jesus? Um, we do see that Jesus ministered in all these different areas throughout his ministry. We can read about them uh, in these different verses. We're not going to look them up right now, but uh, starting off in Galilee, we saw that from the very beginning. In verse 14 of chapter 1, Jesus was ministering in Galilee. He's spent time in Judea and Jerusalem in the Transjordan area, again, uh, over on the east side of the Jordan, and then up in the Syrophoenician area, Tyre and Sidon. He spent time up there as well, except for Idumea. He, hasn't, he didn't spend any time in Idumea, and yet he had people coming to him from that area, once again, that was the area that was down south, um, south of Judea. He had people coming to him from that area as well to, uh, to come to him, I guess. Um, well, let's look at the, the text, I suppose, and uh, see perhaps uh, why it was that, that they were coming to him. Um, we do see that, I'm in Mark 4, not Mark 3, in Mark 3, that... Um, 
twice the word great is used. In verse 7, it talks about a great multitude. And then verse 8 says that a great number of people were coming to him. So this is a, a really huge crowd, likely thousands or even tens of thousands of people that were coming to Jesus from all these different areas to see who he was and what it is that he was doing. And here in a few weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, the parable of uh, the mustard seed and the parable of um, the, the leaven within loaves, which will illustrate how the, the gospel goes out, starts off as a, a little bit, and it has this great working effect within uh, people. The kingdom of God had this working effect, just like a, a small mustard seed grows up into a big tree, or a little bit of yeast or leaven will leaven a whole lump. And we see that starting to take place here, even in uh, chapter 3 of Mark, that these people from all these different regions, all throughout Israel, are coming to Christ. They're having heard about him and uh, responding to him in some way or another. And so looking at the, the text, these first uh, three verses of our text, or four verses rather, seven through ten, uh, how should we understand the relationship of these people to Jesus? What is it that they were doing there? What is it that they were looking for? Why are all these thousands, even possibly tens of thousands of people flocking to Christ? Yeah. And they were, you know, like you said, word of mouth, they had to see for themselves that they wanted something from them, right? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem as if they're actually sold out for Christ. It doesn't seem as if they're committed to Christ, but they're there uh, looking for healing, right? Um, I think it's good and right that we would better identify this group as followers rather than disciples of Christ. Uh, we can go and look at John 6. We can see the a similar thing. Um, let's see. John 6, starting in verse 26. It says that Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that you seek me, not because you, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000, right? And... Even the signs that he was doing, uh, the multiplying of the fish and the loaves, remember a sign points to something, doesn't it? That's how we get places when we're traveling on the interstate. That's how we um, even navigate on a computer or whatnot because of these signs. Jesus was showing them these signs to point to himself, to point to his own lordship, to the fact that he was king. And he says, you're not following me because of these signs, but because you were hungry and I fed you. Going on verse 27 of John 6, he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? That's a great question, right? And this is a great answer. This is a great passage to memorize, especially for evangelism here in Utah, because people are, that's what's on people's mind. What are the works that we have to do? And Jesus answered and said, This is the work, the one singular work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So again, if you haven't memorized those verses, John 6, 28, 29, you probably ought to do so. But then look at what they say in verse 30. It says, So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Uh, again, after Jesus just took five loaves and two fish and multiplied them to feed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, so likely 20,000 people, they're saying, well, what, what's a sign that you have for us that we should follow you? Uh, that's just utter ignorance and, and foolishness, blindness beyond belief, right? Um, 
And Jesus will later say, well, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. But we see there in John chapter 6, the same thing that we see here in Mark chapter 3, that these people are following Christ because they, they want something out of him, right? There they were following him for bread because they wanted to be fed. And here it seems like their motives likely aren't pure, that they're following Christ because he's doing these magic tricks. He's putting on a show and uh, maybe they have some kind of ailment and they have something that they personally need. And so they're all flocking from all over Israel to come and see who this Christ is. Um, any thoughts or questions on those verses? Andy? You would hope so. Yeah, if you go and you you say that all of my money is Corban, right? mm -hmm. given to God, and you don't support your own mother and father, um, you know that gets out, and the you know, walking around and, uh, praying in the synagogue and, and getting the acclaim of men, mm -hmm. there was a. Yeah. You guys, you guys are, you say you keep the law and you violate the law. He was in a real sense of a rebel against the established church, if you will, mm -hmm. established uh, religious system. And to some people that's attractive. Yeah. You know? And also, you know, seeing a dude that's lowered down when they tore up the roof of a house and he could not walk. You know, which is easier to do, say your sins are forgiven or stand and pick up your pallet and seeing that, that, that would just go out like yeah. lightning and just travel, right? Yeah, they definitely had reason to, to flock to him and to yeah. be drawn to him, for sure. But I'm saying at this point, it seems as if at least this group of people, they're not fully vested, which is okay. I mean, we were all there at one point, right? We were all um, kind of wondering and dabbling and, and learning, but we weren't quite there, right? And so that's why I say this group would probably be better identified as followers rather than disciples because they hadn't uh, achieved that, that level. They, they weren't disciples. What is a, a disciple? How could we define that word, disciple? Yeah, a learner, right? Somebody who um, is sitting at the, the feet of somebody else there, a student, uh, they've gone beyond simple interest and intrigue, but they're submitting to their teacher. They're submitting to their their master, submitting to Jesus, particularly as their, their master and teacher. And these guys, they were out looking for, for healing and bread and other different things, which is not a bad thing, but it should be distinguished from a disciple, right? All right. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of skepticism. I'm sure, as we know, there were many 
Yeah. I mean, they got us working people, but there's always the range of people, the people that refuse to be convinced no matter what, and people that don't believe anything. So yep. you have to be careful and be wise in all of this. But when you see people literally being healed like that, <laughs> Yeah, we, by nature, are children of wrath, enemies of God, and we have to have our hearts turned and changed. And uh, we see that happen with many people throughout the Gospels, but not everybody. And so, yeah, again, we, we shouldn't condemn these people for simply following Christ at this point. It's just a distinction that we should make that they're not yet disciples. Yeah, because when he starts talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, yes. you're getting ahead of me, Mr. Bowman. We're, we're going to end up there. <laughs> All right, uh, let's go on. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 of Mark 3. Um, Here we see Jesus returning to more of that casting out demons. It says that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. So, how does the response of these unclean spirits in verse 11 compare to that of the followers from verse 10? So here in 11, the unclean spirits saw him, and they fell down before him, and they shouted, you are the son of God. How does this compare? What, what conclusions should we come to comparing the followers of verse 10 and followers of verse 11? What conclusions could we come to? Circus. Some, some of the false prophets that had come around, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, can't put my finger on the word, but it was just like sensational, right? Yeah. Perhaps even like an, an event, right? Like going yeah. to a, a basketball game or going to a, a concert or something. It was right. the, the thing to do in the day. And again, we are speculating a little bit. Perhaps they were investigating, perhaps they were just selfishly following. But for whatever reason, they didn't know who Jesus was, not to the level and to the degree that the the demons did. However, simple recognition and intellectual assent doesn't save people. That's not enough to save a person. Uh, Will somebody look up or...
quote if you have this verse, James 2.19. James 2.19. He's going to look that one up for us. That'll tell us a little bit about the demons. Go ahead, Jerry. I'm sure you have it in your noggin. You need to have more confidence in yourself. <laughs> you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Yes. Are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? Faith without works is dead. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yes, even the, the demons realize that there is one God. And they, they shudder at him. They fell down before him, realizing, well, there's one God. And they realize that Jesus was that one God. And that's a lot more than can be said for not only these followers, but a lot of followers that uh, we know today. They fail to recognize Jesus as God. And yet, the demons aren't any more redeemed or regenerated or saved than they are, are they? Because that simple recognition, that simple intellectual assent, that's not what Christ calls for. He calls for submission to him. He calls for us to uh, turn our lives over to him, not just to realize who he was, or who he is, rather. Original sin is a, a real thing, right? Yeah, that was the original sin. It took me a long time to figure that out. The original sin was the rebelling directly against God mm-hmm. and wanting to be God. Not being satisfied with being in charge of the world, but wanting to be God too. Yeah. Yeah, so both the the original sin of wanting to be God, that pride for God, and then the, the theological concept of original sin, that Adam has passed that along to to everybody. Uh, Romans 5, that just as in one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, so we have all sinned. Um, That we have inherited that sinful nature from Adam. That is a, a real thing, for sure. And that is what keeps us from seeing Jesus in even this simple way that the demons are able to see him, because we have been tainted by that original sin. And we see in in verse 12 that Jesus, once again, quiets the unclean spirits. We saw this back in uh, 125 and 134, that Jesus tells them to be quiet. He doesn't permit them to speak. Um, This tells us that Jesus had utter authority over the the demonic world, over the spiritual realm. Um, Again, that's one of Mark's focus, the authority of Christ, because Jesus is king, he is Messiah, he is the sovereign, and he has authority not only to... Uh, to heal physical diseases, but also to to cast out demons and also to to shut them up and tell them, no, you're not going to talk. You're going to sit there and and be quiet because I told you to. Um, Augustine wrote this. He says, Both the devils and the faithful confessed Christ. Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God, said Peter. We know 
who thou art. Thou art the Son of God, said the devils. I hear a similar confession, but I do not find a similar charity. In one there is love, in another fear. He is lovely to those who are his sons. He is terrible to those who are not his sons. If the devils had loved him, they wouldn't have said, what have we to do with you? So we do see a, a similar response, right? Both the demons and Peter cry out, well, yeah, you're, you're the son of God. Um, but the demons don't do so out of that, that love, out of that uh, desire to be with Christ. Um, a lot of people will say that they, they love God. If you just ask some person out on the street, well, do, you, do you love God? Do you, do you know God? Do you care about God? And people say, well, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I love God. Because who's going to say they don't love God except for like a, a blatant atheist? Even agnostics will say, I suppose I love God. But if you really want to get to the bottom of where somebody is with, with Christ, a good question to ask is, do you, do you cherish God? Do you cherish Christ? Is Christ precious to you? Um, that's a little bit more revealing of where somebody is with the Lord. Um, because, again, these, these demons, these devils, as Augustine called them, they didn't cherish God. They didn't have that love for God in their heart. And even the, the followers that we looked at in the, the previous pericope, I don't think that they would say that they hated God, but I don't think that they could say, in all honesty, that they, they cherished him either, that he was precious to them. All right, any thoughts before we carry on? Yeah, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm firmly convinced that regeneration precedes faith, that we have to be changed before we can place our faith in Christ. So we have to be taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous son. Um, we have to be made into children of God before we can have that affectionate love and desire for God, that he gives us even that, that desire for him. And so, yes, these, these followers and these demons, they don't have that because they are not in Christ, because they haven't been regenerated and, and given a new heart. Any other thoughts before we move on? All right. Let's look at the, the choosing of the 12. Now, let's go ahead and I'm going to read verses 13 through 15. And I want you to pick out the, the three verbs that we see ascribed to Jesus in these verses. So 13 to 15, be listening for those three verbs. It says that he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. What are the three verbs we see ascribed to Jesus in those verses? Okay, good. I didn't, I didn't pick out went. I, I skipped over that one. Good. So is there a, a fourth one there? 
Yes, and send. Good. So, yes, I, I missed went, but you get a gold star. Good job. <laughs> uh, but that's not one that I'm, I'm focusing on. But yeah, the fact that he summoned these disciples, uh, I think in, in all these uh, three out of the four verbs in those, and perhaps there are more, but those three that, that I was focusing on, uh, we see the authority of Christ, that he summoned somebody. He, I, I can go home and I can summon my dog to myself. I can summon my kids to myself. Um, that's something I can do because I have authority over them. But I'm not in a, a position to, to summon my boss or to summon the, the governor or the president of the United States, um, even though they, they technically work for us. Uh, we're not in a position to summon them in that kind of sense, right? But Jesus, he summoned the disciples because he was their Lord. Um, we see that he appointed them. Um, he is the one who is assigning a task. He's delegating a responsibility to them. Again, this communicates the fact that he has authority over them. Uh, remember, this was kind of unorthodox for Jesus as a rabbi to be doing. Typically, it was the disciples who came to the rabbis and kind of submitted their resume, so to speak, and said, hey, I want to follow after you. I, I want to, to go to this rabbinical school, so to speak, so here's my resume, and um, can I follow after you? But Jesus went and he said, no, you come and follow me. And they said, okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to do that. Um, it was a command that Jesus called them to himself, and now he is appointing them. And then thirdly, we see that Jesus sent them out. Um, again, he's the one who's calling the shots. He's giving the orders. He is the one who is orchestrating and doing so with authority. And in John 15:16, we're reminded, he says to them, remember that uh, you didn't choose me, but I am the one who chose you, and I appointed you. He's telling them, and, and here we're seeing that he's doing just that. He is choosing and appointing the, the 12. Uh, they're not the ones who chose him, but he chose them. Again, going back to uh, regeneration preceding faith, I think that's kind of what happened here as well. Not that all of them were actually faithful. We know that with, with Judas, right? Um, we see that, oh, I'm clicking all over the place here, that Jesus then delegates to them a responsibility to preach as well as the authority to, to cast out demons. That's what he tells them um, in verse 14 and 15. He sent them so that out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Um, we see um, then that his authority is not only over the disciples, but over the demons who are being cast out, not by the Lord God himself, Jesus Christ, but even just by these disciples by these fishermen and tax collectors and these lowly people who have this authority from God on high to be able to cast out these demons. And Matthew goes on in his account, in Matthew 10.1, he says that he gave them authority not only to cast out demons, but to heal every kind of disease and sickness as well. So they were going out as ambassadors of Christ, um, doing this work on his behalf. And then... Um, another parallel account in Luke. In Luke 6, 12, it tells us that before Jesus went out to gather these disciples, to, to summon them, to appoint them, and to send them, that he went to the Lord in prayer. It says in Luke 6, 12, uh, that he went off to the mountain to pray and that he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And then when day came, he calls his disciples to himself and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Um, an apostle is one who is sent out under the authority of another. So let's 
Oh, there's Luke 6, 12. Sorry. So um, let's take a look at who these 12 apostles are, or the 12 as they're called in this passage in Mark, um, and see what we can learn about these 12. We see, first of all, Simon, who is also called Peter or Cephas. Uh, Simon is his Hebrew name, or, and Peter and Petros, that's his Greek name. Cephas is in Aramaic, and all of them, um, to some degree or another, speak of him being the rock. So Simon Peter is the rock. And while, remember, Simon and Andrew, they were called together back in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18-ish. Um, here, Andrew isn't mentioned until a little bit later. So the next disciple that is mentioned here in Mark 3 is James. And James, or Jacob, his name means heel grabber. Remember Jacob from the Old Testament and grabbed the, the heel of his brother Esau. And um, he's mentioned alongside of John, whose name means Yahweh is gracious. And they're given a, a nickname as well as Peter here in the text. What is the nickname of James and John? There in verse 17. Yeah, sons of Bonegers or sons of thunder, right? Uh, sons of thunder, um, which could be understood as indicating their their rage or their anger that they were they were a feisty couple, right? And we can see that throughout Scripture, uh, even here in in Mark in verse chapter nine, verse thirty-eight. John said, "Teacher, we saw someone who was casting out demons in your name." Should we go in and stop him? And Jesus kind of rebukes him and says, no, if they're not against me, then they're with me. You don't need to go and play police, like demon casting out police. Just leave them alone. And then in uh, Mark 10, verses 35 through 39, that's when James and John come and they say, God will, or Christ, will you grant that we might sit at your right hand and at your left? And Jesus says, well, are you able to drink of the cup that I'm about to bear? And it seems like, they say rather presumptuously, and we're not told how much of a pause is there, but I'm thinking they said rather quickly, well, yeah, we can do that. Uh, we can drink of that cup. And uh, clearly they didn't give enough thought to that. And Jesus said, you will indeed drink of that cup, but that's not my position to give you. But these are the, the people we're talking about. And Luke, they're the ones who are saying, can we call down fire on this city? Is that something we can do? These are the sons of thunder, uh, James and John. Um, oh, there are those references there for you in Mark uh, 9.38 and 10.35. All right, Andrew is here mentioned. Remember, he's the brother of, of Simon. And Andrew uh, was not part of the, the inner circle. So those first three, Simon, James, and John, they were all part of the inner circle of Christ. They were his, his close buddies, his companions that got to go and see different things that other disciples didn't get to go and see. Uh, remember, they were at the, the transfiguration um, they were there when Jairus' daughter was being raised from the dead. They were there with Jesus in the garden as he was praying in Gethsemane. They were invited to go farther along with Christ. They were part of his inner circle. And Andrew was not part of the, the inner circle, even though he was one of the first to come to Christ. Uh, in fact, he went back and he got Peter and brought Peter to Christ, and yet Andrew wasn't part of the inner circle. But in Mark 13.3, we do see that he kind of breaks into that inner circle for a little moment, uh, it says in Mark 13, 3, that he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and Peter, James, John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. 
So during that one encounter in Mark 13.3, he gets kind of a, a private little Q&A session with Jesus, which is cool. Uh, another thing about Andrew is that he was a disciple of John the Baptist before coming to Jesus. All right, next disciple we see mentioned is Philip. We read about Philip in John chapter 1. We won't read about that now, but you can look at that there. Uh, Philip is the one who in John 14, 8 through 11, he said, um, he was the one who said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And then Jesus kind of rebukes Philip a little bit and he says, Philip, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me? Uh, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us a Father? I, am, I and the Father are one. And so um, Philip had that desire to, to see the Father. And uh, it's not only Peter who puts his foot in his mouth, but Philip there kind of put his foot in his mouth a little bit. Um, then we see Bartholomew is mentioned next. Bartholomew is the same disciple as Nathaniel. We see two different names given to this disciple mentioned at different times. Um, Bartholomew, that's his, his surname. So Bar being son of. Uh, we see this with um, Bar, Barjona, right? Simon Barjona. Uh, Jesus talking to, to Simon um, that he is the son of Jonah. And so Bartholomew is the, the son of somebody. Who is it? Um, Ptolemy. That's where Bartholomew comes from. That's kind of his last name, but Nathaniel is his first name. All right, and then Matthew is mentioned. Matthew is the same as Levi. We've talked about Levi before. He is the, the tax collector. Uh, next, we see Thomas. Thomas is known most for, for doubting Christ, right? He is the one who said, show me your hands and I'll believe. We see that in John 20. But um, we're a little bit harsh on him. Thomas in John 11, when Jesus is going back to see um, Lazarus, Thomas stands up and said, well, let's go with him. We're, we're ready to die with him too. So Thomas is kind of bold. And again, in that same discourse back in John 20, verse 28, he says and confesses, Jesus, my Lord and my God. So perhaps we shouldn't be so rough on good old Thomas, good old doubting Thomas. Um, his name, he's uh, given the nickname Didymus, which means twin. So he was likely a, a twin. We don't know anything about his twin brother, if in fact he was a twin. But that was the name he was given. All right, then we see James the Less. Um, he's not called the Less here, but in different gospel, he's called James the Less. Um, oh, there we go. Mark fifteen forty. You can read about James the Less. He wasn't related to Matthew, although he and Matthew both had the same, their father had the same name, Alphaeus. So here he's called James the son of Alphaeus. Um, and Levi had a father with a similar name, but it was just a, a popular name. So some have speculated that Matthew and James are brothers, but there is no reason to, to believe that. Next, we have Thaddeus. Uh, Thaddeus is the Hellenized version of Judas. So in other lists, we'll read about the other Judas, not Iscariot. Uh, this is Thaddeus. And I'm sure that you can imagine why he would choose to go by that name rather than Judas, right? I'm sure that we would likely do the same. Uh, we read about Simon, uh, Simon the Zealot. And there's been debate as to whether or not he is called a zealot because he is part of the religious political party, well, political party that is zealous and um, they're wanting to fight back against Rome, or if perhaps he was just zealous for God. Some have suggested that. 
Um, I tend to lean more towards he was part of the political party, but there are both options on the table. And then the last one mentioned is Judas Iscariot. Uh, he is the only one who is from southern Judea, from Jerusalem. All the other disciples are from Galilee, that northern region up by the Sea of Galilee. And he is in all four lists that we find in Scripture. He is the last one mentioned every time. It's always Judas Iscariot last because he is the one who betrayed Christ. All right. So I want to end with this slide by um, looking back at the followers that we were looking at that were following Jesus from all over Israel at the beginning of our lesson. And remember I said that we'd be better off understanding these, this crowd not as disciples but as followers because they hadn't demonstrated any, any saving faith. We don't see any evidence that they are actually disciples of Christ. Um, they just had seemingly a, a desire to have their needs met. And yet, again, they, um, they should be distinguished from the, the disciples. Um, so disciples would be a, a group that were within that, that crowd of followers that were following after Jesus who had um, bowed the knee to Christ, right? They had realized that he is their master, he is their Lord. And we see many times in Scripture that disciple is synonymous with believer. Oftentimes we'll see those two are used interchangeably, that disciples are um, spoken of as believers. Now, oftentimes you might hear somebody say that um, to be a, a Christian is kind of uh, the, the whole idea of mere Christianity, like the very least that you can do to be a Christian is here. But if you really want to follow Christ, then you're up here. You can be a disciple. It's kind of like a, a super Christian, like a next level Christian. Um, I don't agree with that understanding. I don't think we find that understanding in, in Scripture that there are two different levels of, of Christianity, kind of a base Christianity and a super disciple level Christianity. Um, but it's a, a popular teaching that's out there. Uh, if anything, I would say that being a believer is a a higher level than being a disciple. Because remember, being a disciple is to be a learner, to be a student, to be somebody who sits at the feet of Christ. Um, but to be a, a believer, it means that you have truly had a, a heart change, a heart transformation. And earlier, Jerry brought up this verse in John 6. John 6, 6, 6. Um, that is John chapter 6, verse 66. says that as a result of this, Jesus preaching on manna and, and whatnot, and saying, come and uh, partake of my body. It says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So his disciples, those who were sitting under his feet, learning from him, these learners, these students, they left him. And John, 1 John 2 says that they went out from us because they were never of us, right? In Matthew 15, verse 8, it says, Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Or in Matthew chapter 7, where he's talking about the many that in the, the end times, they'll come to him and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not follow you? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Uh, were we not your disciples? And he'll say, well, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So I think that uh, we have to make this distinction between followers and disciples. And even disciples, there are disciples who left after Christ. But if we are truly uh, disciples of Christ. If we are believers in the Lord, then uh, our life will reflect that in a greater way than just merely following after Christ.
We have like 30 seconds for any thoughts or questions. Yes. There doesn't exist. Yep. Yeah, no such thing as a kernel Christian. It's a dichotomy. It's like you're either pregnant or you're not. Yes. No, there's no in between. That's a, a pretty popular view, though. I think there are a lot of people who believe that and uh, can't fault them too much for that. But again, I don't think it's backed up by, by Scripture. There's one level of Christian, um, and a lot of times people will. Uh, kind of pick and choose different verses in Scripture. And they'll say, well, that's a discipleship verse. That's a verse that's not speaking about being Christian, but it's, it's talking about following after Christ fully. Um, and I think that tends to be popular in more antinomian realms that say we don't have to really follow after Christ. We don't have to take up our cross and follow after him. But if you want to do that, then you can be this super disciple, um, but that's not necessary to be a Christian. And I would have some disagreements with them. Amen. How can you call him your Lord if you're not following his commands, right? All right, let's pray. God, thank you again for your word. We do pray that we would all be uh, your true disciples, that we'd be believers in you who can demonstrate that by our fruit, that we would be uh, good trees with good fruit, and we wouldn't be those who are standing before you crying out, Lord, Lord, um, in vain one day, but that we would truly be... uh, committed to you and submitted to you, and that you would be uh, Lord of our hearts, so we would set you apart as Lord of our heart, and we would be ready to give an answer for everyone who asks us to give an a answer for the, the hope that we have within us. We pray that we would have that hope, we'd be able to give those answers, that your name would be high and lifted up today in our hearts and in this church. Pray this in your name. Amen.